Let's hop into the Word. Tonight is uh, January 4th, 2012. I'm not quite used to saying that yet. I'm sure you're not either. And uh, I'm not going to ask tonight who's the oldest in the room. I'm not going to have a stand-up by decade or any of those things, but I can tell you some of you will like this message because it is called Old is Better. Amen now? Old is better. And if you, uh, if you don't understand this yet by the end of the message, you will. Fair enough? Y'all going to give me a little slack? Uh, can I start with a quote that I just enjoy? Uh, there's no particular reason for it. It doesn't fit into the message well. It's just, it's like a pastor's prerogative. I enjoy the quote, so I wanted to give it to you. One day a lady criticized D.L. Moody for his methods of evangelism in attempting to win people to the Lord. Moody's reply was, I agree with you. I don't like the way that I do it either. Tell me, how do you do it? The lady replied, well, I don't do it. Moody retorted, then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Look, there are a lot of things we may not get right, but we're going to try. And there's got to be something said for that. I just want to try. Turn with me to Luke 1, uh, Luke the first chapter. When we get there, I want to show you how God will bring fruit out of your life, how that works, the way in which uh, fruit should come forward. In Luke, the first chapter, starting in uh, verse 29. Uh, actually, why don't we just start in 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Then the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This woman had done nothing to cause this to come about. She was a virgin. Specifically, she had done nothing in this area that could cause life to come out of her. But the presence of the Holy Ghost overshadowing her, overshadowing her life, brought something from her that none of her merit, none of her deeds, none of her actions could have earned for her. And how good was the fruit that came from Mary's little body? It has so blessed the world. What a question to ask the church today. Have we positioned our life in a way that God is overshadowing us? Or are we still competing with Him for reins of control? Are we still competing with Him for the glory that should be His? Mary said, how can this be? I've heard the call that you have for me, and I can't do it. And there is something so empowering about that. There is something so empowering about knowing that the only possible path 
to do what God has told you to do is supernatural. Because if it's supernatural, what is it not? Natural. This is freeing, saints, because it no longer depends upon our abilities at that point. It's freeing because suddenly all of the burden is on God's shoulders. All we have to do is whatever He's told us to do. So the Lord of glory then can call you to something that is bigger than you. Something that is just inconceivable. And He can pull it off through you because you understand. It was never about you. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I ask that tonight we consider taking our life and positioning it in a way that allows God to outshine us, that allows His Spirit to overshadow us. This means you have to be in a position that you couldn't do it. It means you have to be in a position where you're going, Lord, there's no way to get from here to there. It, it can't be done. But... May it be done to me as you have said. Whatever you want, I will do. Whatever it is. Can you imagine what this meant for this little girl? Uh, who in here is 20 years old? Raise your hand if you're 20. We got one 20 year old. 20 plus or just 20? Okay, we'll take a 20 plus. How old are you, Tara? 21. 21. So you get to come sit down with Mr. Charlie and Miss Joe. And. They get a feeling that the meeting might be tense, so they've called Steve and Darnell. Now you sit before the elders in the church, a church that you love, and everybody here loves you, and you get to explain why you're showing and it's your sixth month and you're not married. How you feeling? Are you saying, oh, praise God for this blessing in my life? Now what if it wasn't just some elders that you loved, but it was everyone that you knew? We have to be willing to be ridiculed. To be overshadowed by the Lord means that you have to be in a position that you are not competing for glory. This means that your humiliation is your exaltation. That's what it means. And it means that the areas that you experience exaltation in the end are humiliating. Because what you want is to decrease that He may increase. Could we say that we need a heart check to get there? Yeah. Let's look at some things that get in the way. Is that fair enough? Some things that are not just in someone else's life, somewhere else. Some things that roll around even in this church, in your lives and in mine, that we might could root out. Is that fair? Yeah. Turn with me to Leviticus 10. Did you notice that we just went from Luke 1 to Leviticus 10? Is there anybody in here that can tell me the significance of Luke 1 and Leviticus 10 before we get there? Anybody's that ringing a bell? What is it, Brandon? That was our reading plan for yesterday. That's right. I know all of you were about to beat Brandon to that. But this is the scripture that you all read yesterday. Amen? amen. Yeah, amen means so be it unto God. So are you in Leviticus 10 now? Yeah. Yes. No, we look, everybody got quiet. You're scared. Look, I'm not, I didn't ask who read it yesterday. I'm assuming the best of all of you. Right? You're supposed to read Leviticus 9 and 10 yesterday and Luke 1 and imagine how the Holy Ghost could speak to you about all that you were going to hear tonight because you were a day ahead, hallelujah, not a day behind. In Leviticus 10, actually let's pick up in Leviticus 9, verse 23. 
Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. How cool would it be to see fire come out from the Lord? What are the major structures in the Old Testament where God's name dwelt? The tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle. What is the next giant structure that the Lord built through Solomon? The temple. Our God caused visible fire to come from the heavens and He lit the altar in the tabernacle. You know why? This was His way of saying, I am there. I'm there. I'm dwelling with you. My presence is like a consuming fire. This is my approval for what is happening at that altar. It is my symbolism that my spirit is upon it. Now how about the temple? In 2 Chronicles 7, I know you have it memorized so we won't have to turn there. You, you, you will just know this. In 2 Chronicles, the 7th chapter, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And when he is done praying... You want to guess what came from the heavens and onto the altar? Fire. Now in this beautiful fullness of time that we live in, what is God's temple? Us. And on the day of Pentecost, what did they see and hear coming from the heavens? Fire. Fire. This was a celestial fire, a heavenly fire. It came from the altar that is in the heavens, and it landed on the altars of men. First the ones that they built that were patterns and shadows of the ones in the heavenlies, and then the one God Himself built in your heart. This is where our fuel comes from. That which was born of the heavens, but now resides by way of God's Spirit and His name inside of our heart. The work that we do that is of that fire that came from the heavens and is now present inside of us, that is the work that lasts. It will actually stand through the fire, if you understand the Corinthian reference there. It will actually make it through it. Now those of you that have been reading diligently in Leviticus, in Leviticus 8, we have the priesthood and they are, well, they're ordained. How awesome is that? And in Leviticus 9, God comes down upon this ordination ceremony in fire and He lights the altar with His very presence. And in Leviticus 10, let us pick up in the first verse. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Unauthorized fire. One translation says, strange fire. Having the opportunity to go to the altar and grab that which was born of the heavens, they took a different route. They added something of themselves Something fleshly. Is there ever a time that we have decided that the gospel itself is not enough? There needs to be a certain entertainment value to it. 
There needs to be something, you know, to, to get their attention. Because what fell from the heavens and landed in the hearts of men is no longer enough. We need to, we need to do something to reach those people, you know? Like, like so many things. When did we decide that it was not enough? That the kingdom would no longer be built on the fact that a revelation comes from the heavens, is given to a man, and that it would be a rock that the gates of hell could never prevail against. Amen. We're so program-laden. We're so entertainment-saturated and soaked that we don't realize we've got strange fire growing all around us, and God hates it. He killed these men. You know why he killed them? Because standing next to something that contained his fire, they used their own. And God did not need any fleshly additions. What if Mary had tried to make God's promise happen? Hmm. Well, that's an unwholesome thought, isn't it? What if that angel said, Mary, you who are highly favored, you're going to have a son. And his name will be Yeshua. And then she kind of tuned out for a while, right? She had her iPod in. Next day, she goes out to make that happen. We don't even have an incarnation, friends. How important is it that we don't have fleshly additions to what is genuinely God? Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we're going to throw away our slideshows and our guitars? Not necessarily. Or if they're born of God, then they're wonderful. But if you can't do church without them, you have a fleshly addition. You know, the services that we're in and other places where there's no AC, there's no carpet. You know, somebody got upset about our carpet one time and hurt their eyes. We could go to India. There, there was no carpet there. You know, every week we hear it's too cold, it's too warm. Well, we could fix that problem. So is all of that sin? Is it something that we shouldn't have? Not necessarily, but we need to be careful that what we're being fueled by is that fire that came from the altar of God. He anointed His priesthood. And not a couple verses later, His priesthood is choosing to be fueled by a fire other than what is God's. And you know when they were struck dead? Their own daddy was not allowed to weep for them. There's a prohibition against alcohol in the same chapter for the priesthood when they're ministering before the Lord. And it's odd because that prohibition doesn't really coincide with the rest of what's happening. In fact, they're to be offering alcoholic drinks to the Lord. They uh, are dealing with drink offerings and stuff all of the time. But it's surmised that it's possible that in addition to offering their own fire, you know, they didn't quite feel it either. So they supplemented it in some way. It's surmised that maybe they made this, this mistake because they were drunken. Now that may not be the issue today. We may not, I hope nobody in here has got a flask hidden in their jacket, right? We'll be the first time in church, Charlie. 
I hope nobody in here sneaking off into the bathroom to get lit, right? My, my own father, not the one with Jesus, the one still without, did lines of cocaine in a church bathroom one time, right? We're looking for anything we can to supplement, but it will never work. It always brings death. Amen. It brings death. These priests that gave up what could be theirs died for it. Do you really think we're any different? If the Holy Ghost fell upon men in tongues of fire and it could be seen and it could be heard and the first question the apostles asked people is, did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? If that was their heart, then ministry must be done the same way today as it was done in Moses' tabernacle, as it was done at the temple of God, as it was done on the day of Pentecost with a celestial fire. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Do you remember the song? Uh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Lord, I'm sorry for all the things that I've made it, but I'm coming back to the heart of worship. How many times do we sing that? And it is a total lie. The heart of worship, what does that mean? It means that we're in a place of repentance before the Lord because examining our heart, we're not living up to the ideal that He has for us. It means we're in a place of empowerment from the Lord. Because when He overshadows us, something supernatural is burst out of us. It means we're in a place of joy with the Lord. Because we're now in good standing with Him. I want this church to be able to hold its head high. I want you to be able to walk around like princes. Because this is what God has called us to be. And there is one way to get there. Make yourself utterly dependent upon the Lord. Accept no fleshly additions in your life. When you speak behind this pulpit, if you want to use an illustration because you believe God has given you something that's beautiful and this adds to it, then praise God for that. And we want it. If you feel incapable of speaking behind this pulpit and the Bible just being enough for you, if you think that the anointing of God is not enough and what we need is some entertainment value as well, then watch out, friends. This is not something God will bless. Look, I could build a sermon every week around an illustration because the illustration would be the point, not the sermon. I could do it. And man... Have we seen some good ones through the years? I saw a guy make a sword one time. I mean, think it made an impression on him? I have no idea what he was preaching about, though. <laughs> I just want to make sure that as we move forward, our goal is dependency upon the Lord, not some strange entertainment value. You know, our chairs are getting nicer. Our building is becoming, uh, I wouldn't call this opulent. That wouldn't be the right word. But the building is becoming more and more adequate. <laughs> In every way, hardships are being eliminated as we move forward. And I'm not sure that's the best thing for us. I kind of liked it when we had to meet in the parking lot and in little garages. You know why? Because there's nobody there that is there for any reason other than that fire. Amen. Yeah. This is something, church, we need to watch. We need to keep our heart right. Can you say amen to that? Amen. 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 Let's move on then to 2 Samuel. No fleshly additions. In 2 Samuel, let's pick up in the 6th verse. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all of his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up the ark 
of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Where was the Lord enthroned? Between the cherubim. What an amazing thing. Guys, do you know that in Numbers 4, because I know all of you are reading the book of Numbers regularly, right? In Numbers 4, every Israelite tribe had a special place to stand. And when they stood in the places that God called them, their names tell a beautiful story about the coming of Jesus. And from the air, it would look very much like a cross with the ark in the center of it. And that in itself was amazing. Of course, the whole thing, when you stand back and look at it, with the symbols of the tribes above them and the people's names, it would look very much like the throne of God. And the creatures with four living creatures there. We'll teach on that another time. But watch this. In Numbers 4, when we had to move the tabernacle, right? Did you realize that the dwelling of God was movable at first and permanent later? Kind of like these tents that you're in now are movable and they're temporary. But there's a time coming where Paul said we will get a building from God. A heavenly dwelling that will never fade. A permanent structure. They had to move this tabernacle. And when they did, did you know not just any Levite could move the articles inside the Holy of Holies? They couldn't. It had to be Kohathites. And then the Kohathites, they couldn't just go peek in there when they wanted to. They were not even allowed to look at the things they were moving. You know, they had a procedure to take down that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and they draped it over the ark. And after they had wrapped the ark in it, because... The presence of God was so precious. They then covered it in the hides of sea cows before they moved it. Waterproof dwellings. When they got to the, the uh, table of the Lord's presence, also another very similar ceremony would take place. Not only was there a special way to deal with the presence of God so that it was never treated like, oh yeah, that's the ark over there. It was never treated like a common thing. It was never like... Do you remember when we got this table? Amen. Who, who in here remembers when that table? You remember the guys about 6'10 who built it. Yeah. And when he came in and we were looking at it, I realized that's a single piece of mesquite, the top of that. I, you rarely ever see a mesquite tree that big. I was amazed at it. And for a while when I'd come in, I couldn't help it. I kind of, wow, man, that's, that's nice, you know. I remember the first time a little kid left a drink on it and left a ring over here. Uh, of the boxes covering it now. And that bothered me. But you know what? Now it's been a couple years and I walk in and it's just a table. I don't think about it anymore. I don't think about the craftsmanship in it very much anymore. I, I don't. I'm setting a box on it tonight and some bumper stickers. Right? God never wanted that to happen to the objects that represented His presence. Amen. They were always treated with a certain level of... <gasps> Come on, girls. You remember when... Talking to married women now. <laughs> You remember the first time that you walked in the room, married, and your husband was like, he was stunned by you. Or maybe when the doors opened at the, at the wedding chapel, right? I almost collapsed. My knees went weak when I saw Jennifer, right? How would you feel if some time went by and he was just like, oh, it's you? <laughs> God went out of His way to make sure that His presence would never become like, it's you. He wanted it to be special, precious for us. 
ever with us, but never taken for something common, never something ordinary. Yeah, are you hearing me? Yeah. The more we go to church, the more the spirit of religion makes things ordinary, common. It's just the way we do it, you know? We, we do a couple songs, sometimes somebody speaks a little bit, and then we do a couple more songs. I mean, and you get into the kind of humdrum of it. God never wanted that. And so he took special measures to protect it. Number one, he said, don't you add anything to my prescribed way. Don't you do it. And when they brought extra fire in, he killed them for it. Number two, he said, when my presence moves, there's a way I want you to do it. I don't want you to go just look upon those things. I want you to cover them and protect them and wrap them deep. It's my, it's my pearl. And I want it treated a certain way. Come on now, could we reform our attitude towards the moving of the Holy Ghost in a building just like this one? Yeah. Could we maybe take special notice if you see somebody go out five or six times and they're standing in the hallway checking their text messages and little kid's picking his nose on the front row? I mean, could we stop for a second and think, this is God's presence. Oh, precious. How precious was it the first time you felt it? Because I'm telling you, I would have given anything, anything, to know that I could feel that again the next day. And the first time it happened to me, I didn't know it was a once only. I didn't know whether it was a once only or I would get more. You understand what I'm saying? I remember the first sin that I really remember committing, born again. I fell down outside of the truck and got on my face on the side of Airline Highway and wept because I was scared I'd ruined it. Of course, it's not quite that way now because the presence of the Lord becomes common to us. His forgiveness becomes common do you know what the word common used to be? There's another word for it. Vulgar. The Bible distinguishes between the common or vulgar or profane and the holy. All of those words have the same kind of meaning. They mean that which is for ordinary use or even subordinary and that which is for holy use. The word of the Lord, the presence of the Lord can never become common to us. Let us move forward in 2 Samuel 6. They set the ark of God. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and with hearts, lyres, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. If you don't know what's about to happen, if you don't know the travesty that is about to happen, if you don't know the terrible nature of what is about to happen, you know what we have here? Any regular church service that you can think of. In the name of efficiency. In the name of expedience. We have put the, the presence of God 
on something, hoping that it will quickly come in and quickly go out. We have guided the presence of God as if we overshadow it. Well, this is the order of our service. Can you imagine the audacity of telling God the way you will order His service? Say, this is the way we will do it. Well, what are you saying, Eric? We should have no structure? I'm saying there's a prescribed way we cannot deviate from. Listen to what happens next. You can, you can see it right there. And oxen stumbles. Well, yeah, he stumbled. He was never meant to carry it. How many times are we trying to cause the presence of God to reside in a way that God's prescribed way says it will never, never rest there? The ark was made to be carried on men's shoulders, not on carts. The ark of God never needed to be guided. You know where the ark of God was when Israel went to battle? Out front. You followed it. It did not follow you. You see the audacity of the religious spirit that says, the presence of God is wonderful. We love it. We crave it. We need it. We will do this with it. We will do that with it. These are the boundaries that it can work in. These are the ways we will allow the spirit to move. Are you kidding? That would make you God. That would make me God. But if we're honest, we've all invited a guest. We've all stood next to that guest and thought, Oh Lord, please don't let so-and-so run laps today. Oh Lord, please don't let there be five prophecies in tongues today. Oh Lord, please don't... And we're trying to guide the cart. We sit there and we'll, we'll pray, but maybe not like we would pray if they weren't there. We'll worship, but you know, in a dignified way. Somehow or another, we get used to business-like church. The most powerful meetings our church has are not in our church building. They're in the homes of the people in the church. How, how many of you come to Foundations? Am I lying? No. Am I lying? No. Wouldn't you rather do Foundations on Sunday? I would too. I mean, I'm telling the truth. I would rather do Foundations on Sunday. But the issue here is not the building that we meet in, but the attitude that we walked into that building with. Mm -hmm. And in foundations, you have no real expectations other than we're going to cover a chapter of the Bible. So whatever happens spontaneously, we embrace. But in church, we expect it to happen a certain way because we got children's church workers and we got parking spaces and we got bills to pay and we need to guide the cart. And I'm saying it's just one more kind of strange fire. You can't guide that cart anymore then you can hold back the tides of the ocean or tell the moon when it should revolve. You don't have the ability to control God and every attempt of a man to do that results in a crash and a crumbling and a horrible death. You know who the one person that probably was not disappointed at the end of this? Uzzah. Because God loved him enough to stop him from ruining the most beautiful shadow and type in the book of Samuel. The presence of God going on the shoulders of men up into the temporary dwelling called David's Tabernacle. And the sides of that dwelling being rolled up so that all the nations could see the glory of God and stream to it. The 
presence of God never has resided on carts or with oxen. It rests upon us. And we are steered by Him. He is not steered by us. Well, I just don't know if we're ready for that in our main service, you know. So the gifts are going to be something that's going to move privately. You have the right to do that, really? Well, we're not going to encourage it. Uh, fine. Of course, the Bible says eagerly desire it. I think in addition to making sure we don't offer strange fire, we need to be very careful about what we do in the name of efficiency and expediency. It's not an excuse to throw out all scheduling, to cast off all restraint. But it is an admonition that we look and go, why? Why do we do what we do? And what if the Lord wanted to do something differently today? Should that be an afterthought or our first thought? I think it should be our first thought. Do y'all want to become a normal church? No. I mean, is that why we started this thing? To become just kind of ordinary? It's funny. Churches start in, in houses and storefronts like this. They start off fireball slightly just kind of on the edge of rebelling against everything that is established, right? That's a little bit immature, but it, I'm going to tell the truth. It's always been a part of my life, and it's the kind of churches I've been in. And then somewhere along the way, as more people come, this, this very respectable thing happens. If you're not careful, you pick up all of the titles. You start to pick up all of the clothes. And before long, you might as well move in the stained glass in the pews that you used to preach against. Because, I mean, after all, we've built something how we want to. We want to maintain it. Is that why you built it? Because I thought that we were building this because the Lord overshadowed us. And he said, because you're small, insignificant, puny, uh, because you're all of those things, I want to use you. I want to use you in a way that will make the others go, I wish we had some of that. When did we decide we wanted to be just like them? I said, well, Eric, I have a good, praise God. That's why we're preaching this message. I want you to hold me as much accountable to this as I intend to hold your life to. I want to know that five years from now, if we've built out that thing, and if there's more cars out there, and if, 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 that we don't degenerate into something that simply is trying to parade the ark of God around on a cart. Because I want to tell you the ark can't be kept on a cart. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. You got time for one more, or, or yeah. does our cart demand that we stop? Okay. Let's turn to Second Kings sixteen. Did somebody say let's do two? Who said that? Joel, you hit it on the head because that's really what I've got. Because I've got two left. Second Kings two. Second Kings sixteen. Tell me when y'all were there. Yeah. You still love me? Yeah. yeah. You bored? No. You want to get it right? Yeah. yeah. I do. I really do. It's a sad thing as a pastor that you get privy to situations where you realize most don't do very good. They don't. And it's not just congregations that most don't do very good. It's hard to find ministers that you can be proud of over the course of 20 years. It really is. It's hard to find ministries that you can associate yourself with that finish the way they start. It's difficult. 
We can't look for perfection, but we can look for lives that are overshadowed by the power of God. And we can aim for perfection and choose nothing less. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Then let's hold each other to that. Will you hold your pastor to that? Yes, sir. Yes. Good. I intend to hold you to it. Look around. Tell your buddy, I'm going to hold you to that. What are all you not friends? Tell everybody, I'm going to hold you to that. We have one obligation, that our lives will be overshadowed by the power of God. We don't need to add anything to it. We don't need to make sure that God is received well by making it more expedient, more efficient. And in 2 Kings, 6, 2 Kings 16, we'll find another issue. Start with me then in the first verse. No. Why don't we just pick up in the second verse. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Boy, if that was the sentence that summed up your life, how would you feel? My goodness, your life could be summed up in a sentence one day. And you know what it will say according to Matthew 25, according to passages like this? You either did or did not do what God told you to. You know, I got born again with the scripture, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Yeah. Our lives are going to be summed up with one thing or another. If we had to go to any graveyard right now, and we take all the ones that have no Christian symbols on them, then let's go one further. All the ones that have scriptures on them. God could sum them up though as they did or did not do what I told them. How many would get the A plus? Isn't that a frightening thing to you? I love the Lord. I feel His warmth. I feel His presence. I also feel His foot on my backside. Because this is not optional. It's not okay for us to go, you know, the Lord really wants this, but I'm going to add this to it. Nor is it okay to say, the Lord wants this, but I'm going to make sure it goes like I find it palatable. And in Ahaz's life, we're going to find a third problem that is so pervasive in the church world that sometimes it, it's a pervasive attitude in us without meaning to be. Look at verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. Come up here and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel. Hey, what is it in Hebrew when we say, come save me now? Hosanna! Hosanna. <laughs> king Ahaz is saying, Hosanna! Hosanna! But he's saying it to a foreign monarch. Oh, he's got the right attitude. He needs to be saved. But he's calling out to the wrong source for salvation. You know how many times people are talking about Jesus? They're singing songs about Jesus, but it is evidently some other Jesus. Because the one that we know, know will not be involved in the things that they're involved in. People can say all of the right words. I've gotten so... I was a salesman for years. I've heard people say all kinds of things. As a pastor, I found out it's not any better in the church world. Our mouths lay claim to heaven and our feet do not even accurately maintain the dust. 
He's crying out Hosanna. But who is he crying out Hosanna to? When did the Lord stop being enough for him, I wonder? And Ahaz took the silver and the gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. He took whose silver and gold? Hey, how, how much of what you have belongs to the Lord? In the church world, we'll settle for a tenth, right? I mean, just tithe and you've done all you need to do. And if you don't tithe, throw some change in the plate, tip God, and pretend to tithe. Duck your head when that statement comes around every year, right? We're taking the things that belong to God, and we're using them on anything else that we think might save us. You know, it's an amazing thing. People pay for their health insurance every month. You know? People pay for their electric bill every month. They pay for whatever they think they need. And you know what this man thinks he needs? He thinks he needs protection somewhere other than the Lord, so he'll pay for it. I wonder what would have happened if he had had that kind of wholehearted devotion towards the Lord. If he was crying out, Lord, save me, and everything that you've put at my disposal, I put at your disposal. I wonder what would have happened. Might his life have gone differently than it did? You know, when you get used to, not, to God not coming through for you, when you get used to having to lean on your own arm because of your own rebellion... It leads you further and further down the dark road. Look at verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar. He saw an altar where? Damascus. Where's Damascus? Syria. Is God the God of Syria? Is that what he's referred to in the Old Testament? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Syria? Where did God choose to put His temple in His name? Israel. In Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. Now some people broke off and went to Bethel and that was sin, but how far off the track do you have to be to be getting your designs for your altars from Syria? If there's an altar in Syria, it is evidently to a foreign god, is it not? Yeah. But hey, it's a good altar. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty. It's nice. We can use it for the Lord. Never mind the fact that it's dedicated to foreign gods and it's not God's design. It's nice. There's no reason to kill Agag and slaughter all of those sheep. We can use them for the Lord. Understand what I'm telling you? Yeah. Read Samuel 15. You'll understand it. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and furnished it, I'm sorry, and finished it before King Ahaz returned. You know, God's projects always take longer than the devil's do. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and a grain offering and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of fellowship offerings on the altar. You know where all of those offerings are listed? Leviticus 1 through 5. He's taking the things that God taught him to do. But he's doing them on an altar that is not God's. I wonder how many people are using their godly gifting for ungodly purposes. I told Matthew one of the most convicting things in my life I preached about here. A woman and I got into a small argument. It's mostly her yelling at me. 
in a parking lot of Kroger's. I have a godly gifting. I looked right in her eyes and I saw what her weakness was. I saw what was causing her to be that way. That is a godly gifting. It's a pastor's gifting. And I did the most ungodly thing in the world. I used what God had given me to hurt her rather than heal her. I never felt so low as when I left there. Went back to see if I could fix it and she was gone. I went back the next day and she was gone. God has overshadowed your life. He has filled it with good things. We cannot use the good things God has given us for unholy purposes and think it's God. How many people do you think are selling music today that God meant for them to give away for free? What do you have that God didn't give you? Look at verse 14. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord brought he brought from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. <laughs> Okay, so you, uh, you get confused in all the directions. Let me lay this out for you. In God's setup, the first thing that you come to is a bronze altar of judgment. And when an animal was killed, its blood was splattered in your face. Yeah, I'll say in your face. Don't the kids still say that? No, that's an old thing. In your face. This was God's way of saying, you are guilty. But the next thing that you move to was a means to wash. You looked into the mirror, you saw your reflection, and you could be cleansed in His presence on your approach to His presence. He intended that because an awareness of guilt has to precede entering into His presence, or else you were never actually cleansed. You can't be cleansed from what you don't know you did. This man took God's altar and put it off on the side and put his new altar there. Why not just throw away God's altar? Well, that might have convicted his heart, you know? We never actually walk away from the Lord in our thinking. We say we're serving the Lord. Of course, it's not his altar we're sacrificing things on. Look at this next verse, 15. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar. Offer the morning uh, burnt offering and the evening grain offering. On the what? Large new. There is no way to motivate a church like a building project. I'm just going to tell you. Our largest offerings we have ever received came at two times. Two. When we built out the building on Eldridge and when we built out this building. How do you think that is? Is it, is it because we were just much more dedicated to the Lord? Or is it just because we could see something large and new? Yeah. We have this tendency to think that the fire from God's not enough. We need to add something to it. And then the fire we do have that's from God, we need to make it more efficient, more expedient. We need to control it. And then we always need to be looking for the next new big thing. You know, you can say what you want to about Jimmy Swaggart. I stopped picking on him a long time ago. I actually 
You can throw something at me if you like. I kind of admire some of the things he's done in his life. I think it's possible to, to still love a human being and admire his body of work, even if there are some serious blemishes in it. And every time I look in the mirror, uh, I, I still see that same struggle. I see that I have to learn to admire what God can do through a broken human being. But having said that, can anybody name Jimmy Swaggart's pastor? Yeah, I didn't think so. He came from Faraday, Louisiana, and he never preached to more than 25 people in his life. Was he a failure? Was he a failure because he didn't have a large new? Or was he a success because nobody knows his name, yet somebody he discipled touched most of the known world? We need to reform our thinking. Large, new, is not always better. Yeah? There may be a day that we build something bigger, something new. But my heart's desire is that what we crave is actually something old. By the way, just for giggles, read that 18th verse. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. What happens when a man cares more about what the world thinks than God thinks? Well, he adds lots of fire to God's fire. When there is the presence of the Lord in his building, maybe because of the mercy of God and the need of the people, he tries to steer it and control it. And really where his focus is most of the time is, you know, to reach the people, we need to build something new and beautiful, something big, something, I don't know, made out of crystal. You know? I talked to a missionary here yesterday who said, you know, I've been to that church for 10 years. I've tithed there, I've built things, I've sweated there for 10 years. And they don't support me on the mission field. And I've been on the mission field for more than a year. So I went back and I sat down with the pastor and said, am I doing something wrong? You don't think my work is worthwhile? And not in so many words, but the, pa the, the pastor basically told the missionary, you know, we're not that into missions. I don't think it's right that we would pay somebody to be on an extended vacation. Ooh. What God has called me to do is build a mega church. Missionary asked me what to do. I said, do you really need me to tell you? He said, well, I've already written a letter of resignation. I just want to know what you think about it. I said, I think you ought to give it to him in person is what I think. Sweet, gentle man. But do churches get off track? If churches get off track, then do we have the potential to do that? How do we make sure that we don't? Hmm? Yeah, we're going to hold each other to it. Aren't we? Yeah, that's how you do this. When the, when the newest member can stand up and say, Hey, 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 this is not what was preached here originally. Amen. I've listened to the messages. This is not it. This feels like a like an oxen and a cart. Is this really what y'all want? Let me say this. If the newest member can't do that, then maybe pride consumed us and we didn't ever realize it. Maybe like Samson with his head in Delilah's lap. The Spirit of the Lord slowly left because there was no room for him to overshadow us. And we didn't know it. Turn with me to Luke 5. I told y'all two more points, didn't I? I said two. Okay, Luke 5. I, I, I think that this will be short and sweet. But I've been wrong before. I was editing a message uh, today, and Matthew and I were laughing in the room because for 22 minutes, uh, I closed. <laughs> he 
Yeah, like that old car that once you get it started, it just uh, got to shoot it to kill it. In Luke 5, we have a, a fairly interesting scenario. And I, I'm going to, if I offend you with this, this one at least won't be offending you with something very deeply personal to you, right? Like very often I try to trample on like your household gods. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll get all over them. But in this case, it's going to be something just a little more abstract. When you've always looked at a scripture a certain way, you don't immediately like it when somebody points to it in a different way. Sometimes we do. But I remember Mike gave us one not long ago about, uh, was it the man who bought the field? Yeah, the man who bought the field. And I'm sitting there listening. I know it's good. I mean, I, my spirit inside me knows it's good. And I'm like, that's not the way I've been teaching it 20 years. I never heard it like that. Like, you know, I thought, but that started, he was right. Can y'all give me a little grace? Yeah. Okay, well, here's one. And I'm not going to go so far as to say that what you've heard before is wrong. Because you probably heard it from me. Yeah. But what I am going to do is say, I think I found something that might be worth considering. Is that fair enough? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's a whole lot more watered down than I actually mean it. I found something good that you should know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in Luke, let's uh, pick up 5.27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Wow. Then Levi had a great banquet, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the, their sect complained to the disciples. So we have Pharisees and we have men who teach the law and are Pharisees. When we say that, we sometimes think of bad people, Right? We've been taught to think Pharisee is hypocrite. If you could just for a moment indulge me. The Pharisee of this day was the person that looked at the Sadducees and said, there's more than just temple worship. There's more than just this organized religion. It's good, but there's something more. We're missing something. We need to study the Torah. If we study the Torah, we'll find life in it. We need to live in holy ways. Those guys have positions that are of God, but they're not living in holy ways. Hey, you know what? The, the kingdom is supernatural, the Pharisees taught. There are angels. There are demons. Uh, the goal of, of the faith is resurrection. And, and the guys at the organized church, they're not, they're not teaching that. This is who the Pharisees are. And there were teachers of the law who were members of the Pharisee party. When you look at it like that, the Pharisees are the kind of new reforming powerful evangelical group. Okay? <laughs> Alright, so, now that they're not a foreign body, their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We're all into holiness. We're all into studying the word. We don't understand why you would associate with those people. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ignore this chapter break. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. That's interesting since they're Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. What are they really doing? They're questioning their new movement versus Jesus' movement. They are a new movement 
within Israel. They're a new group within Judaism. And they're dominating the landscape. And most of the time, they've got some stuff right. Because when compared with the organized Sadducees, they look good. Yeah? I don't know if you're beginning to see a little parallel there. But it just so happens that there was this whole Protestant Reformation thing. And man, when you compare the Protestants to the counterparts, they look good. But Jesus doesn't always look at things quite that way. In fact, we find out that if you have number six, seven, eight, nine, and five right, he'll ask you about number ten. With that in mind, let's see what it goes on to say. Jesus answered, Can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it to an old one. Who is the new garment here? We've been taught all of our lives, and, and maybe rightly so, I see it differently tonight. The mo new movement within Judaism was the Pharisaical movement. It was the hyper-evangelical, exciting, Torah-loving, reform movement. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it to an old one. What would the old one be if I were right? Just grant me that I might be right. The old one would not be the Sadducees. Who goes way back before there? It would be the faith of our father Abraham. The old one would be that pure Judaism that God revealed himself to a man and that man became his friend. It was never about just reading this or doing that. It was about something better than that. Now follow this through with me and let's see how Jesus finishes this. He told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it to an old one. We cannot mesh or match your religious movement with the purity of what God wants to do and has always been doing. If He does, He will have torn the new garment, fractured the Pharisaical movement, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. You won't live up to what Father Abraham does with your methods of fasting. You won't live up to it with your refusing to meet with sinners. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will, will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. We're not going to be able to take what you're doing and put it into an old wineskin. It won't work. Now, this is a comparison of two things that are incompatible. You've been taught all of your life, maybe, like me, maybe been taught by me, that what we're looking for is new wine and a new wineskin. New wine and a new wineskin are not edible. They're immature. They do not have, they're not at the place that they can be consumed or used. Watch this. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new. The old is better. Why would Jesus say the old is better if he's the new movement? Why would he do that? Why would he say that the old is better and no one after having the old wants the new? 
There has always been a movement in the spirit of religion that says, hey, uh, what, what God did there was good, but we need to add more to it. There, what, what, what God did there was good, but what we need to do is we, we need to streamline it. We need to make it more efficient. We need something new and beautiful. And God is seeing through Jesus here. That idea is incompatible with what I'm doing. Jesus was not something new, friends. Deuteronomy 13 taught us that if a prophet came and he said or did anything different than the law, but what he prophesied came about and he did miracles, God is testing you, kill him. Jesus is by definition the old and pure wine that you're always after. A new wine and a new wineskin is the mark of two things that are immature that need to be stretched, grown, aged, and matured. I've never seen it that way before. But you know why it's become important to me tonight? We don't need to look for something new. We don't need the next new thing. We don't need to add to God's fire. We don't need to control it. We just need to make sure that we are in the authentic, purely aged, perfect, time-tested flow of the Spirit. And He never changes. Now, you may not agree with me, and it's okay. It's okay. It says it actually a little different than the other... Uh, and the other Gospels. But there's no way around, Jesus said, the old is better. So why would we be looking for the next new thing? By the way, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, was that a new thing? Because it happened at the two other major events. Are you hearing me? See, we think because of our dispensational teaching that this is new and it never happened before. And the reality is God does not change like shifting shadows. We need to learn to walk with Him. We need to learn to crave Him and Him only. I had some things I was going to share with you about the Word of God, but we're going to save it for another evening. I'd like to tell you that He's good enough to be found in every book. There's no such thing as an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's one Bible. I'd like to tell you that nothing is old and obsolete. In fact, no one after having the old wants the new, for he says the old is better. Yeah. Before you get your sensibilities offended, all we're really saying is that Jesus was in the same vein. He was in the same power. He was in the same influence that Adam was when he walked in the garden, that Moses was when he split the Red Sea, that nothing fundamentally has changed about God, but now for the first time in human history, there is something that can fundamentally change about man. If there's something that's new, it's what's born in you. God doesn't change. Yeah. So while we're not going to look for some new move of the Spirit, what we are going to do is look for new people that the authentic Spirit can move through. This will keep us out of the latest fad-driven Christianity and into an introspective, relentless pursuit of the King.